Hello, and we're back after a short hiatus of over four and a half years. For episode three of Tag Soup, I caught up with Jason Bernard of CaliCube Pro. Jason can often be found at conferences, acting as the master of ceremonies, and hosting his own pod and video casts. So here I am today with Jason Bernard. Did I get that right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. So a few questions for you. You spent the last year being a digital nomad. Tell me how that works. Well, first you have to give up your flat. Um, give the keys back to whoever owns the flat. <laughs> um, get all your stuff, put it in storage, pack a bag and not have this is my conception anyway not have the keys to a flat um permanently and live off whatever i can carry with me if i can't carry it i don't take it and i can't use it um i mean it sounds like a bit of a self punishment but it actually it's it, it really is for me it's been an experience of learning to live with as little as possible. And because I'm doing a podcast with video podcast, I've actually ended up with half my stuff being clothes, the other half being uh, recording equipment and a toothbrush. So it's very, very frightening to me. I've got a lot of stuff in my house, which is stuff that I've collected over years, not a huge amount, but have you got stuff like that in storage? Yeah, well, I, I've got kind of obviously a long life with lots of things that have happened. But every now and then I've moved. I, I, I moved from Liverpool to Paris. I left all my stuff at my dad's house thinking I was going to go back at some point. And that was when I was 23 or something like that. Uh, he threw it all out. So kind of I turned up in Paris with a small bag, uh, accumulated stuff in Paris over the period of about 10 years. Then moved to Mauritius and the same thing happened again. Um, then moved back to Paris, the same thing happened again. Um, and then stayed in the south of France for about five years. And you accumulate enormous amounts of things very quickly without really realising it. And then when you sort through it all, you think, when did I last use that? Long time ago. Can't remember. Never used it. Um, and I, I actually tried to throw a lot of stuff out, but a couple of my friends came around and wouldn't let me. Uh, so I now have a storage space absolutely chocker full of all the stuff that I honestly now I was saying to the other day, I can't remember what's in there. I've got no idea. <laughs> so what about you do have clients at which you service regularly. How how does it work with them? Um, well, a lot of it, well, obviously a lot of it's a kind of distant distance work, whatever that's called, tele-travail, tele-work, oh, yeah, sorry. It's called remote work, remote work now, I suppose. Oh, that yeah. would explain why Alida did the interview with me yes. on remoters.net. Brilliant. Um, and kind of basically, they they we work using video conferences and sending emails and sending reports. And it's, to be honest with you, not half as easy as I thought it would be. 
That's interesting. Because I thought, because I was living in the south of France and rarely saw my clients anyway, uh, it was all functioning that way anyway. I was talking to them on the on the phone or using um, Google Hangouts or Skype or whatever, sending them emails, sorting it all out. And I thought it would be exactly the same on the road, except for the fact that I won't be in the same place two days in a row. Um, but it turns out, number one, moving around takes up a lot of time. Mm. Um, and actually the, the traveling, settling into places when you get there, just checking into hotels. Then they chuck you out at 11 in the morning and your plane's at six in the evening. So you hang around in cafes all afternoon. Um, and you kind of think, oh, I'll get loads of work done, but you never do. Um, and, and the other problem is that my clients say, oh, can we have a meeting tomorrow? And the answer is, well, actually, I'm in the plane or in the train or I'm going to be checking out the hotel. Or I'll be in a cafe in the afternoon, so, you know, you probably won't be able to hear me or it will be difficult to, to discuss. And and it ends up being very difficult organising those meetings. And I've had some clients be quite disappointed about that and, and they've let me go, as they say. Um, There's the, there seems to be quite a difference between there's remote workers who... I'm a remote worker for several companies. I, mm. I work freelance from home and I work for those. Then there's um, people I know who are out who are more nomadic. They'll go and base themselves for three, six months in one place. Yeah. But you move around constantly. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that comes from, because I was in a band before and we'd move every day to a new gig uh, and it would be four gigs a week. And... I got really used to it and I actually quite enjoyed it. Um, now I'm a bit older, maybe maybe less so. But I, I actually find interesting enough after four days in a particular place, when I actually move on, I get in the, the car or the taxi or sit on the train and I get a, a feeling, a slight feeling of elation to be moving again. Um, and I kind of think part of my psychological makeup is as I, if I keep moving, I kind of tend to feel better about things i don't really know but um the the thing about keeping moving is it's very tiring but it is actually a lot of fun uh, and you see loads of different things and i mean i was i mean looking at people are saying to me oh what you went to rome what did you see and after three days in rome i had seen the hotel the office i was working in and all the things in between which was beautiful roman buildings <laughs> and then uh, Gennaro Cofano from Wordlift said to me, you know, you really should see something. I was going, ah, daft. And he walked me around Rome on a Saturday afternoon and it was absolutely brilliant. Um, but then it, if, if I had been to Rome and I hadn't done that, I wouldn't really have minded. It's not something that preys on my mind. I don't think I have to go and see all these touristy things. So uh, what was the highlight of your, of your nomadic life in 2019? Ooh, that is a difficult question. You said there weren't any difficult questions. <laughs> you cheat. Um, well, difficult for me. <laughs> well, it depends. If, if you look at it from a professional point of view, uh, I would name going to PubCom mm -hmm. because that's the first time I've spoken in America and uh, PubCom's obviously quite important. And when I actually spoke, people like Bill Sflowski and Roger Monty turned up um, saying, we want to hear what you've got to say. And it was it was, for me, incredibly... An incredibly big moment to be in America, to have these people that I've seen and respected from a long way away for, for years and years and years. Um, and I don't know, if being accepted, being appreciated, being respected and going, 
crumbs. I almost said a rude word then. <laughs> crumbs. Yeah, uh, it, it feels so good. Um, and I felt terribly good about that. Um, but from a, a, where did I visit that I liked them? Oh, I like going to Australia. That was, that was funny because I went all the way to Australia. Uh, Sydney and Melbourne, lovely place. But you kind of travel halfway around the world to see more or less the same things that I've yeah. got here anyway. Um, so it was it was interesting with that perspective. And then you can obviously go and see the kangaroos going out back, and I'm afraid I didn't do that, so I can't <laughs> really comment more than that. But and then, and then you turn up in Sydney, and I was walking down the street. And it was Liverpool Street, which gave on to uh, Bond Street, gave on to Oxford Street, and it was going oh, back in London here. Yeah, but they were all in the wrong order, which I found kind of confusing. Um, Went to Thailand, uh, and that was my least favourite. Not because I don't like Thailand, because Thailand was really nice, but because I'd chosen to go from Paris to New York to Los Angeles, fly back to Paris, spend the night, and then fly straight out to Thailand, spend three days in Thailand, come back to Paris. Uh, and I was just, that, that, that is too much. Uh, I mean, that, that was the moment I thought, okay, there are limits to uh, how much I can push myself to do. Um, you know, all all the goodwill and energy and smiley, bouncy, tiggerish from Winnie the Pooh, fun, 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 bouncy, springy tail stuff can't pull you through that. Uh, and the, the couple of weeks after that, I felt pretty darned awful. <laughs> um, there you go. I'm, I'm, try, I'm actually trying to think of the the, the very best moment. Um, but I can't. Okay. Because they were all great. How about that? That's good. So you're currently working on a new course about brand entities. Why is that topic important now? Ooh, that's a very good question. I've been, I actually looked at the first talk I ever gave, and that was five years ago in French, in the east of France. And I was talking about your brand reputation and looking at brand SERPs for examining that brand reputation. What does Google think of you? What does Google think the world thinks of you? Because somewhere along the line, Google's a reflection of the world's opinion of you, which is incredibly interesting for me. When you look at it, you can say, well, actually, without a filter, or obviously the filter is Google, but I can actually see what people, what the world thinks about me, or the world's opinion of me. And rather than think, oh, I've got this bad thing coming up on my, or the naked, the less than perfect thing on my brand set, uh, I should drown it which is the immediate reaction. I agree, obviously you want to get rid of it, but you think, why did that come up? Why does Google think that's pertinent? Why does Google think that's important? Why does it think that that's valuable, pertinent and important to somebody who's searching my brand name? And the answer is because it's representative. I mean, obviously some articles have got kind of big newspapers behind them and it takes more power or it, it seems more representative than it really is. But then you kind of say, there has to be something I need to look at behind that. Where does this come from? So that's a kind of ORM point of view, but I'm not actually very interested in ORM. ORM, excuse me. That's how I was getting ORM and REM mixed up. <laughs> uh, Michael Stipe, is it? Yes. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm much more interested in thinking, okay, when somebody searches my brand name, it's a prospect or a client or perhaps an investor or a potential hire, somebody I might want to employ in my company, or a partner, or a potential partner. All of these people are very, very important to me. 
what they see when they search my brand name is phenomenally important as to whether they either sign up and do business with me in one way or another, or whether they continue to do business with me. So that kind of idea, I think people tend to underestimate the importance. They either say, oh, not many people searching my brand name, so it doesn't really matter. Or they say, because I'm doing SEO on the rest of it, my brand serves fine. And then you say, well, why don't you go and track it? Why don't you look at it? And a lot of the time people come up with the realization that it isn't as good as they think it is. It might be okay, but is it accurate? Is it positive? And is it really going to convince people that they want to do business with you? Um, the other aspect of that, of course, is that we look at whatever we see when we search it. But what, what does somebody in Australia see? What does somebody in the next 10 see? And it's often very different. And it's kind of getting a grip of what people are seeing, what they might be thinking of our reputation when they see it, helps us, A, attract those people or keep them on board. Um, but also, and this is my favorite part of it, it forces us, if we're smart people, to take a big step back, look at it and say, why is all this stuff coming up? Why isn't it quite what I wanted? What can I do to make it better? Um, and having done this brand SERP course, realized that I started off saying, how can I make my Google business card, which is what I like to call it, mm. look better? And then moved on into how can I get and retain partners and clients? Then on to how can I use this to understand how the world perceives me? And then on to how can I use this to look at my current digital ecosystem, realize what's right and what's wrong with it, and then amplify that out into what is my brand strategy, what is wrong with it? Sorry, my digital strategy and what's wrong with it and what's right with it. And my really quick example is if I don't have Twitter boxes on my brand serve, it means I've got a bad Twitter strategy. Yeah. I'm not using Twitter right. If Facebook isn't ranking a lot of the time because I don't have a proper Facebook strategy, I don't have videos on that brand serve. I don't have a video strategy. It isn't that I don't have videos. It's that nobody's engaging with them. And that's incredibly important in brand serps is Google will put things on the brand serp that have engagement. Engagement by my audience indicates that it will be important, relevant, and useful for that audience. Uh, so the whole brand set course that I've written and that I'm going to release very soon just comes down to what's relevant, important, interesting, and valuable to your audience. Um, Google will show that. And if you, if you want Google to show anything in particular, you just have to demonstrate to Google that it's useful, valuable. Um, positive and can't remember what the other words were. Um, is, there, is there a big difference between big business, medium business, small business and personal brands in this space? I would say personal brands stands out the most, i.e. as being completely different. Um, I mean, because big brands, medium brands, small brands, they've all got access to making sure that their Google business card is accurate, positive and looks really sexy. I like the word sexy. I mean, it's perhaps not appropriate, but having those video boxes, the image boxes or the Twitter boxes, uh, having a knowledge panel on the side, a knowledge panel in particular, people think, oh, you have to be a big brand to get one of those. You don't need to be a big brand. You just need to explain to Google who you are and what you do and convince it that what you're saying is true. doesn't need to be worthy anymore. It used to be that you had to be a big brand. You had to be notable in the Wikipedia sense. Now you just need to be understood 
by Google for it to show that information. And that information, once again, if Google perceives it to be valuable or useful to your audience, it will show it. Um, so come on, coming back to that idea of saying any brand of any size can have a brand SERP that looks really sexy. Absolutely no problem at all. Um, and the personal brand is slightly different principally because it's so ambiguous. Whereas brands tend to have unique names, at least within their industry or within their country, if they have an ambiguous name, if they idiotically chose five years ago to call themselves, for example, first vehicle leasing, who were one of my clients, you've called a cat a cat. And so when somebody types cat into Google, it will come up with a cat and it won't come up with the business. Mm. Um, and that's that's an interesting turnaround from exact match yeah. to being unique is actually better now. Um, so when somebody says, what brand name shall I choose? I had a client asking me actually not very long ago. Um, and they were saying, oh, should we go with this one, which actually described what it is they were doing? Or should we go with this one, which is a completely unique name? And they were debating. I was like, there isn't any debate. Um, my view, if you're going to call your product what it is, or your brand what it is, you're going to very quickly run out of any kind of attachment that a client might get, any kind of meaning, because it becomes completely generic. Yeah. Whereas if you have a unique name, it's more difficult to start with. But once you've attached a meaning to that name, that meaning is something that you've managed to create. And also, once again, your brand search, somebody searches for you, they see what you want them to see, if you've managed it correctly, of course. Um, whereas with people, um, because we all share names and Simon Cox is a particularly difficult example. Indeed. Um, actually, have, having any control over what comes up is very difficult. Um, I mean, Google's going to show what it thinks is the most probable. Um, and in the case of Simon Cox, there are boatloads of Simon Coxes all over Indeed, the place. Yeah. So Google's getting pretty confused. And Google and Bing are both, when they've told me about, what do they do with ambiguous queries? They put multiple possible um, answers, answers yeah. to make sure they cover all the bases. Yeah. Um, and the less ambiguous you are, the better the result will be and the more control you can have over it. My personal name example, Jason Barnard, there are 250 Jason Barnards in the world. I've been working on my personal brand set for five years. I'm the only Jason Barnard who exists in the world well, you would think that if you saw the brand so and yet there's an, a south african footballer who's actually quite good um you know as a there's a, a hockey player there's a guy in a orange jumpsuit from america <laughs> won't talk about him a dentist of uh, all sorts of people and what i do see is the more these people appear in the these people oh dear my <laughs> My my uh, name twins appear in the news. The more they impeach upon my SERP, yeah. Um, and there is that thing of relevancy and newsworthiness, and the fact that it keeps coming up. I think that increases the probability that somebody might be looking for them in Google's eyes. Um, and there's also, in fact, a Jason Barnard who does a podcast oh. called The Strange Brew in the UK. Okay. We're now Twitter friends, uh -huh. um, which is cool. And it's actually a really good podcast. Uh, but despite the fact he's gotten an awful lot of, I mean, he releases podcasts every month. Uh, he's been doing it for donkey's years. He still doesn't come up. And I think that 
is principally because he doesn't work at dominating our no I can go our serve that's kind of fun <laughs> isn't it this yeah. kind of shared yeah um and, but I mean I think if you for me it's relatively easy but for sort of Simon Cox David Brown John Smith yeah I haven't found the solution. I mean, uh, I, I was talking to a journalist from The Observer or the Sunday Times, one or the other, who was going to Malta to report on the murder that went on there a few months ago. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or came out a few months yeah. ago. Uh, and he was saying that he had a problem with another journalist, right? The fact that they were sharing this serpent. and sometimes it was one of their knowledge mm-hmm. panels that came up, sometimes with the other one, he used his middle initial. Right. And started calling himself, I can't remember what his name was. Well, this is indeed what actors do, isn't it? So in the Actors Guild, there's only one name each. Is there? Yes, well, why so many actors have changed names. Oh, right. Because I they're born was... with a name and there's another one, act an actor there, so they go, well, if I've got a stage, a stage name, simply because they don't want people getting the wrong one. Oh, okay. And so they put their middle initial in because they've got Sometimes, no imagination yeah, 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 to think yeah. of a proper name. Possibly, yes. <laughs> I mean, obviously for a lot of us, it's easy to put initial, middle initial in. Um, I would be then Simon M. Cox, uh, as that's my middle initial, but I don't use that. I, I put Simon Cox SEO. You can find me on Twitter with that, but you can't find me with just Simon Cox anymore because the football's taking it all over. Now, okay. Six, seven years ago, I dominated all the Serbs, but last six, seven years now. Well, I mean, and, and that, that is the thing. It's like kind of one, one thing. Oh, I should put a middle initial in to distinguish myself, but you can also attach yourself to an entity, Indeed, SEO. Yeah, yeah. Which is actually really good for Google as well. I mean, <laughs> help helps with the understanding. Um, I mean, at the minute, now now you said it, I might start doing it for myself. But uh, but um, attaching anything that makes you unique would always make it easier for people to find you. Indeed. So um, last year we talked about bugbears and gremlins. Oh no! What are yours? Uh, oh, I'm, I'm, I've got very many, actually. About SEO or about life well, in anything, general? Anything. Socks. Socks. I hate socks. Okay, then SEO. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, anything digital. Okay. Um, uh, well, I can't think of... I, think I can't actually think of very many things. Um, okay, what's wrong with socks? I was just, I never have enough. Oh, don't you? You should have three, all the same colour. All right, yeah, no, I actually bought... Three, my three. Well, because if you're in a drawer and it's dark, you, you pull two socks out. They'll always be the pair. But if you've only got three, they get really dirty. <laughs> you keep, well, you wash the other one. Oh, right. Okay, fair And you've got one dirty sock, one clean one. And, yes. <laughs> no, okay. I don't, I don't think you've got that. That's not good advice for anyone. Just <laughs> <laughs> have three socks. Um, yeah, no, the, the very few things in, in SEO that, that, that annoy me, the very few things in life that really annoy me, um, I suppose actually one thing that I've always had a problem with is something that John Cleese, in fact, was talking about with uh, with Monty Python, which is quite surprising, is that he said in the Monty Python there were so many creatives, creative people, and not enough producers or people who do things. Um, and he was saying basically there were, how, how many were there? Five? Six? Uh, well, it depends who, you, yes, six. Six. I mean, he was basically saying you had six people with 100 ideas each. Yeah. So you had 600 ideas after the meeting, and he said, right, who's going to do what? And the answer was John Cleese did it all. <laughs> well, after what he says. Yeah. but um, And that is a real problem. People come and say, oh, I've got this great idea. And you go, that's wonderful. Uh, now, 
are we, how are we going to put it into place? How are we going to actually execute this idea and make something happen of it? And, and very often people won't, won't actually do the, 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 the grunt work, as it were. So I, mean, what would, I suppose my bugbear would be people with boatloads of ideas, which we all do, um, who don't actually do anything about it. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> no, 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 because <laughs> that's exactly me. I have a shed load of ideas in my life, and I've I've really not done a lot with them. Can so. I clarify? I just <laughs> yeah, meant when they're working with me. I, I don't mean. Oh, okay. Right. I don't mean. I do, don't mean people have as many ideas, and not do anything with them as they want in their in the privacy of their own home. Um, but it, you know, in, in the work in a, a partnership working yeah. environment, um, kind of that the, the the idea that kind of the the workload ends up on somebody else and they're saying, oh, I had the idea and that's already enough because it's such a brilliant idea. And my answer to that is, you know, I had five ideas just as good as that yesterday and that person over there had five ideas just as good as that yesterday. The idea in itself, and this is, I think, what John Cleese was saying, the idea in itself isn't worth anything if there's no uh, action taken to put it into place and make that idea something palpable. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I knew I had to stop the phrase there because I was running out of, of, of kind of words. Thank you, Jason. Where can the public at large find you online? Oh, you can find me on calicube.pro, which is my brand SERP project where I research brand SERPs and track brand SERPs and track the Knowledge Graph API and try to understand what brand means to Google and how Google presents brands to people um, and it's a lot of fun uh, but a bit mad because um, there's just so much data behind it and, and I don't really know what to do with it anymore. Anyway, sorry. Find me on caddycube.pro, Twitter it's Jason M. Barnard, LinkedIn it's Jason Barnard, Facebook I think it's Jason M. Barnard but I'm not 100% sure um, or or jason.jasonbarnard.com, uh, which I'm sure about. Marvellous. And, of course, absolutely every single conference, you'll be there. Too many <laughs> conferences, yeah, with my, with my podcast, podcasting other people, whether they like it or not. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much, Simon. And the uh, tune goes, boop doop 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 Simon Cox is here to stay. <laughs> He's here to say hello. No, it doesn't get like that at all. Um... <laughs>